There is something inspiring in tackling a hard thing, something revealing in the struggle. Do not miss the wisdom of the adversity you have walked, are walking, or will walk through. And once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through or even how you managed to survive. You won't even know or be sure when the storm is over. But one thing is certain, when you come out of it, you won't be the same person who walked in. This passage was taken from chapter 13, titled, Decide to Absorb the Wisdom of the Struggle, colon, Giving Yourself to the Mountain, and a powerful book called Second Wind, Decisions the Resilient Make to over Overcome Adversity. Of the 14 chapters in this book, one of them begins with the word define, the other 13 with the word decide. And throughout the book, the author asserts that every obstacle presents an opportunity to gain a treasure, and that treasure can arrive in many ways. And he poses the ultimate challenge to his readers. When facing a struggle, you have two paths to decide. One in the form of a question, why me? The other in the form of an exclamation, try me. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and our guest today is Clint Schumacher, lawyer, football coach, father, husband, TED Talker, and the best part, someone who wakes up every day and goes to work inspiring others who, when facing adversity, encourages them to continually find their second wind on the path to happiness and success. Our show today is sponsored by Climber, CLMBR the most efficient full-body cardio and strength fitness machine available with instructor-led on-demand climbing and fitness classes. Key investors include Novak Djokovic, Jay-Z, and Ryan Seacrest. To learn more about Climber, go to clmbr.com. Use code CHUCK250 at checkout to save 250 bucks on their full offer. That's www.clmbr.com. Offers cannot be combined and are valid on paid in full pricing. Clinton, welcome to a climb to Man. the top. I am Chuck. honored to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm incredibly honored to be here. What a great introduction. And uh, I am very excited to get to visit with you. Yeah, same here. You know, when I'm, you, you actually reached out to me as a listener to the show. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say you made my day when you did that. Because as I came to learn about you, and the first thing on LinkedIn says you're a lawyer, but then it continues on to say you're much more than that. And you wrote a wonderful book called Second Wind. Why'd you write it and who'd you write it for? Well, uh, great questions. Thank you. The, um, here's why I wrote it. I had an experience seven or eight years ago, actually coaching of all, play, of, of all things youth football, where we'd had a team that had been very successful. We were in the championship game. Um, fifth grade kids, and we got behind the game early, and they hadn't been behind in a football game in about a year and a half, and they started shutting down, Chuck. They did not respond well to adversity, and by the third and fourth quarter, a number of them had tapped out, and I walked off the field that day incredibly frustrated at the kids. How could they, after having experienced success, got into a situation where they got behind early and then shut it down? And for about two weeks, I had that frustration with the kids. And then 
this little um, thought came into my mind that we sometimes talk about in the coaching field, which is everything you see on the field, you either coached or you allowed it to happen. And I realized, you know, my frustration was misplaced. I, I had these 11 year old boys who were experiencing for the first time dealing with adversity inside the context of a football game. And they were trying in real time to figure out what that meant and how to deal with it. And I had not prepared them for that moment. And, and that started a, a study that I had on how, you know, how do you teach resilience? Can you teach resilience? How do you foster resilience in yourself? How can I fill uh, this hole in my coaching? And after several years of study, I thought, you know, this is really valuable, not just for fifth grade kids. And whether we won or lost that game was, was really in the grand scheme of things unimportant. The important thing was, is could I teach this group of boys how to be more resilient in life? And then I started looking at people that I worked with professionally and other people in my life. And I thought, you know, th this is a struggle, not only that I have, but that so many have as we're getting into careers, we're starting families, we're beginning to experience some of the adversities of life. How do we successfully overcome that and get through our obstacle to the other side and become a better person once we're through it? Well, it was a wonderful opening. You're, you opened the book with that, but you opened one of your TED Talk. And I want to say Clint, Clint has two TED Talks, um, beautifully, very similar themes. But in one of them, Clint, Clint talked about a pair of running shoes sitting in the closet, about a marathon, a one and done. And uh, after his first marathon, he decided to hang up the shoes and maybe not run other marathons, but those <laughs> shoes were to remain. And it was very similar. And I loved the parallel story between your own struggle in the marathon when you hit a certain part of them, hit a certain mileage, you couldn't breathe and you were cramping up. Can you explain? Because I think that speaks a lot of your own path before you could determine how to help others with theirs. Explain the two shoes in the closet. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the and it's a lens through which I began to put what I was learning about adversity into because I could relate to it because it happened to me. And so, yeah, as we were turning 30, my wife and I were we were struggling to have um, to start a family to have kids. And and she came to me and said, hey, before I'm turned 30, I want to run a marathon. Will you do it with me? And Chuck, I had no desire to run a marathon, but I knew what the answer to that question needed to be, which yeah. was, yes, of course, honey, I will do that. And so we did that together and we trained together. And on race day, which was early December, I live in Dallas, Texas, and we had trained in the summer and early fall in Texas, which is not cold, okay? But on race day, it was in the low 30s and it was sleeting and it was raining and it was, the weather was really rough. And we got about, 10 or 11 miles into the race and I started cramping up in my back and I couldn't take a deep breath. And so I'd have to slow down to walk to be able to get my breath. But because it was so cold and we hadn't trained in the cold, I would get shivers and I'd start to, to shiver. And then I'd have to begin to jog again to get my body temperature back up to get rid of the shivers. And the, the cramping would start again because I couldn't breathe. And so I had this cycle of slow down, speed up, slow down, speed up. And, and finally, I could tell my wife was, was totally off rhythm because I kept slowing down and speeding up. And, and I encouraged her to go on and she did so that she could finish her race. Because quite frankly, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to finish. And I got to mile 20 
and Chuck, I think, you know, you, you've run marathons. Most people I have, I, I, my experience happened in mile 14. So I'm with you. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> well, mile 20 is commonly known as the wall where runners kind of hit the wall and they begin to experience problems. Well, for me, that was the turning point. Something happened at mile 20, something clicked where my body started working again. And I caught the proverbial second wind. I could finish my race back on pace with, with the way that I had trained. And as I thought about dealing with adversity, I thought about that experience between about mile 11 and mile 20 and, and how I just kept going and, and, and I kept running until eventually my second wind arrived. And I thought, man, that's a powerful metaphor for life that we find ourselves in the midst of these obstacles. And we're thinking, can I make it through this? Do I have what it takes? Should I just quit? And so oftentimes, if we'll just keep running and keep grinding and keep trying to overcome the struggle, we'll find the resources to be able to get over the obstacle. And that's a lot of what, um, you know, I put into the book Second Wind and the lens that I was, was looking through it. When I picked up the book, the first thing I did, the author in me, after I looked to see who did you dedicate the book to, I looked to the chapters because you talk about in one of your TED Talks about a framework. But what I, what I noted is as I read and I looked at the titles of the chapters, as I noted at the opening, it was really interesting to see decide, 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 or actually it was decide, define, and then decide throughout. And then in your TED Talk, in parallel to that, you talked about a formula, E-R-O, events, response equals outcome. Can you explore, because I was fascinated by, as before I even read the first chapter, I was now struck by a framework that was decision-based, that is is what happens to us someone else's decision, or is it our response, how we decide that actually determines the outcome. Help us understand how you came to establish that framework for the book. You know, as I studied resiliency and as I studied people who had been through difficult circumstances, it almost always came down to a series of decisions that they made. And one, and the important first decision is, is to decide you're going to take control of your circumstances. And that's the E plus R equals O formula, which is, you know, the E stands for events. There's events, there's bad things that are going to happen to us in life. We just need to accept that that's going to be the case. And for some people, that bad event then wholly determines their outcome. And that's the O. But what I encourage readers to do, because what I saw the super resilient doing is that they made a very intentional response. That's the R. E plus R equals O. And if you, if you determine that I'm going to be defined by how I respond to this event, how I respond to this adversity, then you can control your outcome. And no longer is that adverse event, that obstacle that you have, the definition of you. Instead, it's the way you respond to that adversity that defines who you are and that ultimately determines the outcomes that we have in life. Yeah, and to our, to our listeners, as you read the book, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on, it was just an interesting development of your mindset. As I continued to read each chapter, the encouragement about the next decision, that as we climb that mountain, every time in you face an adversity, you may face 
an, an unexpected or unintended consequences that causes you to, to redecide. But Clinton, what you talked about is at a certain point when you make that decision, it's the why me, try me. And I really like that mindset. How did you come to that? And how do you encourage people to take the try me instead of the why me? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, if your mindset when you face adversity, and this is something that we teach our, our athletes, Chuck, I mean, if your mindset when you face adversity is why me? Why did this have, have to happen to me? Why this bad call in the game? Why this circumstance in life? Why did I run into this career situation? Why is my, ch my child not doing what I'm trying to teach him or her to do? And if you're overcome with thinking about the problem that way, you're, you're never able to solve the problem. If you then transform your mindset into try me, look, I know this is hard and I may not have figured this out yet, but this is not going to be the end of me. And this is not going to get the better of me. Try me. And I think when you take on that mindset, you'll begin to be able to work through those obstacles and not just work through them, but work through them with velocity work through them quicker and come out the other side, a, a better person, a wiser person, a more experienced person. And take us back to your high school uh, football players. When you decided to hold yourself accountable, to accountable for the fact that, you know, that whoever taught them how to work through the adversity of losing, they just taught you to keep trying until you win. How did you communicate to your players to change their mindset? And then what was a reaction to it? Mm. Well, you know, there's, as you've said, I think a lot of times we think it's just enough to tell somebody, hey, keep, keep, keep trying, don't give up. But there is a series of tools that you need to be equipped with to be able to get past an adversity. And for every player, it may be a slightly different tool, but, you know, there's a handful of them that we use. We, I talk in the book about one minute discipline. Hey, when you find something hard, just try to continue to execute perfectly for one minute. When you get to the other side of that, do it another minute, other side of that, another minute. And that, time. you know, that applies, that applies to life. For some people, it's being able to forgive. Maybe it's something a teammate's done, quite frankly, and this is important. Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe you put yourself in a situation and you continue to beat yourself up about it. And, and I talk about in the book, three big obstacles to resiliency. You know, one of them is shame. And until we can get past the shame of having made a mistake, um, you know, I, I say we're in a fog until we can get out of the fog of shame and begin to truly see the circumstances around us. You know, it's, it's tough to become resilient. And I think that's true for an athlete. They make a mistake. They feel down on themselves. And so instead of that last play being impacted, not only is that play impacted, but the next five are impacted until they can get back into a champion's mindset. Yeah, in fact, I've noticed, and what I also loved about the book is when you are on social media and you even reference it, you know, we all see this perfection in our lives, that we get to tell the story on social media of all the great things we've done, yet your book throughout it is laced with the power of vulnerability, that it's okay not to be okay, yet when you coach these high schoolers who are even taught from their parents, unfortunately, the need to be perfect, do they accept your message? And if so, how? And you, you really put your finger on it. I mean, I, I coach athletes that are, are very driven and they come from families that are very driven. Right. And oftentimes they're very successful in the classroom, uh, the athletes that I get to coach. And, and the athletic field is one of the few places where they experience adversity. And so it's a, it's a great teaching tool. It's a safe place to teach. 
And um, I, I think they're accepting of the message because for, you know, for this small arena of life, a lot of their other life goes very well. They do well in the classroom, but this arena of life can create hardship. It can create failure. And they're looking, actively looking for the tools to get past those things. And so um, because of that, and, and when we're able to be successful in giving them a tool to get past whatever adversity they, they have, they are very receptive to that. In fact, I would think from this, from your, your players, there is a sense of relief from the parents, maybe not as much. In fact, you end your book or pretty close to the end of the book, you talked about what is relevant now when we read the news about the college scandal and about parents who, who wanted to cheat their way. And, and they unfortunately, there was a misalignment in the path. Do you mm. prepare the child for the path or do you prepare the path for the child? And I thought it was a really powerful close or it was pretty close to the finish of the book. But I want to get that theme out quickly here. Can you explain the difference? Because it was awesome how you how you weaved it into the story, the path for the child or the child for the path. Can you expand on that, please, Clint? Yeah, you bet. And we see this all the time, you know, in our our culture. I don't think our culture is all that different than it has been in the past, but perhaps we see it more clearly now. You talk about the Operation Varsity Blue scandal of a few years ago, where several wealthy parents basically paid their way or paid their child's way into elite institutions, colleges and universities across the country, whether it was to have somebody take an SAT or ACT for them, whether it was to pay somebody inside the university to give them special privileges with regard to admission. And, and that's, that was a very um, notable uh, high profile incident of something that we see all the time in parents working with kids and that quite frankly Chuck I you know struggle with as well it's hard as you know as a parent it's hard to see your child struggle it's hard to see your child fail it hurts it does hurt and and it it makes you question your worth as a parent but an important part of parenting I think, and I'm, I continue to try to uh, come into more of a fulfillment of this, is teaching my kids how to be successful when they launch out from home. And to be able to do that, they need to learn how to deal with adversity. They need to learn how to deal with difficult circumstances. They need to learn how to deal with failure. What happens when I'm not doing well in a class? What happens when a class is hard for me? What happens when I applied for a job and I didn't get it? And to be able to have those, you know, as, as I've come to think about it, to be able to have those circumstances when they're still under the safety of my roof, I, I want to make sure they have that and they've got that skill set of learning to deal with difficulty in their life. Because, you know, as all your listeners know, when we get out into the real world, it's going to come. And uh, hopefully we've got our kids prepared for it. Yeah, no, I love that because, you know, as, as I and I teach at Columbia University in, in the college, when I look at all the courses they take, and it's not just where I teach, but where many of us, including you in, in the high schools where you teach, is there a course out there called How to Overcome Adversity? Mm. No. Is there a course called How to Collaborate with Your Mates? Uh-uh. Is there a course called How to Be Adaptable in a World of Continual Change? No. There's math and science and biology, all right. good. Yet somehow I believe, and I think we're on the same page, Clint, here, if we could reinvent the curriculum to help our children condition to the fact that it's never, or 
will hardly ever be a straight line up the mountain. The marathon that you run, you won't break two hours. In fact, you're going to break a sweat in the first five minutes and you're <laughs> going to have a tough time at mile 13, the way mine, one of mine, I lost three minutes just sucking wind. And, and then I got my second wind. And here you came along and wrote a book called Second Wind, yet you got a day job that keeps you pretty busy. I didn't even get to that, but I do want to slip that in because I, you, you did mention your law school experience. Tell us, Clint, what you did and how eminent domain, the, the constitutional right of eminent domain fits into your law practice. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm very uh, privileged and blessed to get to represent property owners who are having their property acquired or taken by the government for some public project. It could be a highway, it could be a pipeline, uh, an electric line, a school building. You can think of various types of government projects. And so we help property owners navigate that. It's obviously a very uh, small niche, uh, but it's one I really enjoy. And, and I enjoy getting to help the people that I that I get to help. So um, that's, that's, that's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet you found the time in your TED Talk, in your writing your book to be able, and, and in addition to fathering three children and marriage and all of that, was it hard to find the time and the commitment to do this, or was this just part of your natural rhythm? You know, Chuck, you find the time to do the things that are important to you. Mm -hmm. And and at some level, I felt driven to do this. I mean, I, I absolutely love what I do from a professional standpoint. I'm very blessed to get to do it, and I love getting to work with clients. But then getting to work with the, the high school athletes that I work with is really, that is my biggest ministry. As you suggested, they are um, uniquely receptive to the message of a coach, and they give you access to their lives that they wouldn't ordinarily give most people. And so that's the biggest impact that I make in the world, other than uh, being a spouse and being a dad, is getting to work with those athletes. And so um, so you just make the time to do it. And then the the content in the book, you know, as I said, I, it, to, to an extent, it was selfish. I started the study to become a better coach because my team was struggling and I wanted <laughs> to help them. And then at some point, I had so much content. I'm like, you know what? I need to just put this down to paper because I'm convinced there's somebody somewhere. I'm not even sure I know who they are that needs to hear that message. And I wanted to get it down on paper and uh, hopefully get it to whoever it is that needs to hear it and see it uh, to make a positive impact in their world and the world that's around them. Yeah, and I appreciate, but you do make an incredibly important point in both the book and in your TED Talks about the tools of connection. And mm. what you found is the commonalities among resilient people is they don't just decide for themselves. It's the people around us that help us to get through, to walk through those tough parts of the mountain. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, a lot of that was personal experience and then seeing the experience of others. I mean, as we were going through, as my wife and I were going through the struggle of starting a family, we met another couple at church that had been down that same path, and they were an incredible resource for us to try to navigate, you know, what does life look like when you're in that situation and what, what options do you have? And as I looked at resilient people, so many of them had somebody that had been down the road in front of them that they were humble enough to open themselves up to and, and get their help. And I, I think, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, Chuck. Every, every obstacle that 
I've experienced, that you've experienced, that your listeners have experienced, somebody else has already been down that road. And there's just an incredible amount of wisdom in being able to connect with somebody that can, one, give us hope that our struggle is not unique and our struggle can be overcome. And then two, to give us the practical advice and tools uh, to get through it. You know, I say that there's, there's incredible power in someone that has a healed scar helping someone else that has a fresh wound. And if you can find that person that has the scar, the healed scar that looks like the wound that you have, you too can get down that path in a successful and meaningful way. Yeah, you definitely, what I got a lot out of the book was heightening the contrast between where you are and where you could be. But in order to get through there from where you were to where you want to be, it's not going to be alone. It's often going to be in the spirit or at least in the collaboration with others, and that we're all each other's teachers to help us get through those times of adversity. To our listeners, where can they find your book? When is it available and where can they find you? You bet. So um, it's available on Amazon, ebook, paperback, hardback, also on Audible uh, in, in audio book form. It'll be available on May the 7th. It's in pre-sales right now. And uh, I'd be honored if, if somebody found it and read it. We also have a website, find www.findsecondwind.com, where you can find out more about the book and uh, see if there's something in there for you. I want to leave with two other things. One, you paid homage to a law partner of yours named David Patton. And he grew up in the tough part of Texas where the weather is tough and it's hot and it's rocky and it's all that. When I read that letter, Clint, I read it again and then I felt it. I, and I don't know David's voice, but I couldn't help but find his voice, mm -hmm. even though I've never met him and never heard of him. I read that and I said, oh, my God. And I thought about how wonderful my parents were and how blessed I am for the values they they instilled in my brothers and me. Talk about David, the impact he had on you, and how you, oh, close to the finish of the book, tell us about that letter. Yeah, you bet. That was that was good. David um, David Patton is an incredible oil and gas lawyer, practiced for many years in, in Houston, and I was fortunate to get to be his partner for about two decades. And David would, from time to time, send around emails to his other partners uh, talking about just sharing life wisdom. And after he had retired, and actually while I was in the process of writing, he put out on Facebook a, uh, a letter that he penned as a letter to my adult children. So David writing to his own adult children. And it was a reflection of the work ethic that his mom and dad had taught David and his hope that his children would pass that along to his grandchildren and talked about how his mom and dad gave him assignments around the house and gave him time schedules to make sure that his time was being productive. And more importantly, made him aware that his contribution to the house, whether it was working around the house, whether it was working outside the home, was vitally important to the operation of the house to bring value in his eyes to the work that he was doing and, and being a productive uh, young man. And I just thought, man, that is so great. And it's so wise. And I reached out to Dave and I said, hey, can I include this letter just as you wrote it in the book? And he very graciously agreed. And so I uh, just wrote it verbatim, copied it verbatim from what David had posted to Facebook. And Chuck, as you say, it's, it's uh, very meaningful. And I suspect uh, after you read it, you got David's voice pretty much correct. He's a rough, tough 
tough South Texas guy, uh, but with a huge heart and a lot of wisdom. Well, I think the thing that I found most about it is this is a letter to parents. To me, this is a letter to my mom and dad who are in heaven. They, you know, they both passed. But mm. when I think about what that did, it inspired me to just to take that moment and to look up to the heavens and thank mm. my mom and dad for instilling what they did for me, what they did for my brothers. But my dad was a teacher too. And what teachers do to bring joy, hope, faith, everything you describe in the book, that once we get through the adversity, what we really are finding is the hope and the inspiration to pass it on to others. And I'd like you to finish up as I was just recounting all the wonderful tales in the book and the, and the wonderful story, a great storyteller. I then got to a story I'd never heard before. And it was a story of a king who decided to put a boulder in the middle of the road. And I read this and I was like, wow, how do I not know this? I thought I knew them all. And I, I laid back and I read it and I said, damn, if this isn't the way to recap a book, share with us the story of the king and the boulder and the boy. <laughs> oh, Chuck, well, that's, that's great. I, I, uh, it brings me so much joy to see you uh, talk about it and recount it. I'll share the story. You bet. So there was a king that had put a boulder in the middle of the road. And after placing it there, he stood off on the side behind some bushes to see how the people in his kingdom would react. And the first man that comes down was one of the noblemen, a very rich and well-to-do man. And he saw that boulder in the middle of the road and he walked around it and then continued on in his journey. A second man came, a, a person that was in the king's court, and he also saw that boulder. And he too took a path around it and continued on down the road. And then a third man came down the road, a very simple man, a farmer, uh, not a person of great wealth in the kingdom. And he saw that that boulder was creating a problem for the people in the, in the road. It was, it was blocking their path. And so he took that boulder and with great uh, amount of effort, he rolled it over to the side of the road so it would no longer stand in everybody's path. And when the man looked back to see where that boulder was, there was a purse of gold coins sitting underneath where the boulder had been. And so much of our life, Chuck, is, is like that. I thought it was a great analogy for life that, that when we run into these obstacles, if we will take the, the time, the effort, the emotional energy to figure out how to solve them, once we have gotten them solved, once we have cleared the road, once we have cleared the obstacle, there are gold coins in a purse there for us. Maybe it's not actual gold, but it is the gold of wisdom. It's the gold of life experience. And as you say, it's the gold of being able to then share somebody or share something with somebody that's on the road behind us. Yeah. And I, I want to finish with, first, let me thank you for bringing an incredible amount of vulnerability, of power, of your personal narrative and how it related to reading this wonderful book. And to our listeners, this book is called Second Wind, Decisions the Resilient Make to Overcome Adversity. And for many of those who know me and listen to me each week on a climb to the top, Clint and I are saying the same story. Mm. We are all climbing our mountains, but what we all have in common is we are going to hit on the path adversity, challenges and obstacles and the best part of our lives are not hitting the summit it's sharing the stories of how we removed the obstacles and clint and i want to i want to summarize here with e r equals o 
to our listeners, what do we want you to think, feel, and do? Clint, could you please recount one more time? Because this is the words we want to leave them with. When faced with that obstacle on the path or on the mountain, recount, please, what you want them in their mind to recount when they face that obstacle. Well, that's the essence of it. I mean, I think if people will think, I can do this. Maybe I haven't done it yet, but I can do this. And if, and then if they'll feel maybe two things. One, I'm, I, I am worthy to overcome this obstacle. I have what it takes to overcome this obstacle, and I am not alone. Somebody else has had this same fight and has been able to overcome it. And then if they will do, if they will decide to define their life, as you just said, by their response to that adversity, I think that they'll experience some great outcomes. And Chuck, I, I um, man, it's been great to get to visit with you. And I am so appreciative of what you do and the message that you put into the world and uh, just really in alignment with what it is that you're about. And man, it's been a lot of fun to get to visit with you. Indeed, Clint, I am honored. And thank you very much for being a listener. You are, we have, I think, produced 71 shows. You are the first listener that I was so compelled by your story. I hope there are more. But when I read about it, I said, you have got something really powerful in the universe. And to our readers out there, reading Second Wind, when I read it, I was climbing the mountain. I, it was it was awesome for me. I loved every word of it because Clinton, it was written in your voice. It was very powerful. It was very personal and it was compelling. So thank you for this wonderful book available March 5th, March 6th, March 7th. Yeah, May, May, May 7th. That's oh, right. May 7th. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. On, available on May 7th. Please go to Amazon and write a review as a call to action too, which I will do as well. Now that the show is over, I am going to write a review. Thank you to Climber, CLMBR.com for our sponsorship. But most important, Clint, thank you so much for your contribution. It was wonderful to host you on a climb to the top. Chuck, thank you. It's been a great honor. It's been an honor. And to our listeners, thank you. As always, keep climbing those mountains, keep inspiring others. But the most important part, never give up, never surrender, and recognize that if you want to change, the most important part that you can change of all of the things around you is to change yourself. Good night. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.